Pastor Doug here from Crossroads. It's great to be with you. I hope that today's message will draw you closer to Jesus. So my younger brother and I are two and a half years apart. And so growing up, we fought a lot. Uh, We love each other. We cared about each other. uh, But there's just enough an age gap and being brothers and constantly being together. uh, We got into a lot of scraps. And most of the time it was just dumb stuff, you know, getting on each other's nerves, uh, not sharing things, uh, playing too physically. But sometimes we would escalate it to like a real fight. And sometimes we would just drive my mom crazy. And ordinarily, this was not, this was just kind of everyday occurrences. But sometimes we would take it to the next level and she would be really upset with us. And we knew we were in trouble. And we really knew when we were in trouble, when the phrase came out, just wait till your dad gets home. Now, some of you, that phrase may still have some meaning to you. Maybe you remember that one, or maybe you've even said that one in the past. Just wait till your dad gets home. In that moment, I knew in those instances, something changed. The dynamic changed. Now, I was not going to be anticipating my dad's arrival at home. Because with the arrival of dad came punishment. And inevitably, dad would come home. And we didn't go running up to the door, hey, dad, we're glad to see you, so glad you're home. No, 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 that is not how that went down. We were no longer anticipating and looking forward to the presence of my dad in the house because the presence of my dad meant punishment. Now, how many of us, if we're being honest, have a similar thought when it comes to the idea of approaching God or getting close to God. That what we experience when we think about getting close to God is not anticipation or excitement, but a little bit of fear, a little bit of dread. Well, that's what I want to talk a little bit about this morning. And we're in the middle of this series uh, called greater than, a study of the book of Hebrews that we're doing all summer. And we're going to begin at the end of chapter 4, and we're going to be continuing on into chapter 5. As we get started, there was a verse that we covered just real briefly at the end of last week that I want to revisit because I think it's going to inform what we're going to talk about today. And the verse says this in verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 4, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now what this means here, the idea we're seeing here, God sees everything. God knows everything. And we have to answer for the things that God knows and sees. Now if you're like me, my initial thought about this verse is not excitement. It's not anticipation. It's a little bit of fear. It's a little bit of dread. It's kind of like parent-teacher conferences when you're a kid. 
Like nothing good happens when your parents interact with your teachers. The only thing that can go wrong is it's, it's going to be bad. It's like they're going to find out everything you did or did not do. At least my parents. That's how my parents were. That's what they were looking for in parent-teacher conferences. And so I'm sitting at home just wondering, okay, is it going to be okay? Like you just, there's not going to be good things that come out of this. And that's kind of the impression I get when I read this verse. Like I do not have anticipation. And then verse 14, it says this, Therefore, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Yeah, better hold on. Better hold to that path or else. That's what I'm kind of getting. That's my impression combining these two verses. But then look at verse 16. Verse 16 says this, Let's approach God's throne of grace. Let's approach the throne. Now, wait a minute here. God knows everything. God sees everything. He knows what I've done and what I'm supposed to give an account to. The last thing I want to do is approach the throne. That's not first on my priority list. And add to this the fact that this was an era. The Hebrews would have been very, very familiar with the idea of kings and thrones and rulers The Hebrews would have been way more familiar with the idea of approaching a throne than we were. Approaching an ancient throne was not something to be trifled with. It was dangerous business. Often your life would literally be on the line. If you approach the throne in a wrong manner, look out. It was coming. And this was true in many ancient cultures. You just don't casually approach kings and queens. And we see a good example of this in Esther with the Persian throne. Listen to what it has to say. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the throne in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their life. The default was death if you approached the throne. That was the default. The king had to specifically declare you innocent to spare your life if you approached the throne in the wrong way. Now, the Hebrews didn't have a throne that they had this kind of reverence for, but they did have something that had very similar equivalent in terms of how it was approached, and that was the Holy of Holies would have been in the temple or previously in the tabernacle. And it was this room in the inner sanctum of the the palace, the temple. And it represented the presence of God on the earth. It was kind of their version of a throne, if you were. And if you approach the Holy of Holies without going through an exact series of steps, the result, likewise, was death. So for this room, the Holy of Holies, only one person could ever enter it, and that was the high priest. And even then, only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And there was a whole series of sacrifices that had to be performed surrounding this so that it would be okay. The priest would have to bathe first. He would have to wear a very special wardrobe. And there was other ceremonies involved, burning coals, incense, all kinds of things like that all so that he wouldn't die when he went in there. 
In fact, their, their outfits had bells on them often. And the other priests would be outside the Holy of Holies listening to still hear if they heard the sound of bells to make sure the guy was still alive. Now, there's a Jewish tradition that they would actually tie a rope to the ankle of the priest. That way, if they screwed this up and they died, they'd be able to haul him out without having to go in and get killed themselves. Now, there's not really any scriptural evidence for this, and, and the history is a little vague as to whether or not this actually happened. But it does illustrate the seriousness of how they dealt with it. Approaching God's throne was a big deal. Now, keep in mind, the throne we're talking about in Hebrews is not a literal throne. It's, it's representative of God's presence. But it carries that idea, that weight. So if it's you and me, and God knows everything. There's no way I want to approach the throne. There's no way. I'm Adam in the garden. I'm trying to get out of there. I'm, I'm hiding, whatever. And for many of us, this is how we view approaching God. We know who we are. We know what we've done. Here's a quote that's full of joy. Only you know the full range of your secret transgressions, insufficiencies, and inadequacies. No one is more familiar than you with all of the ways your mind and body are flawed. It's very encouraging. So as a result of this knowledge, many of us fear approaching God. And if we do approach him, we're not looking forward to it. How many of us, the dominant view of God in our lives is that of fear? Fear of approaching him. Or maybe it's being racked by guilt and shame whenever we think about it. Constantly thinking of all the ways we've messed up. We see an angry God waiting to just zap you. How many of us, when we screw up, think to ourselves, even if it's not quite consciously, how am I going to get punished for this? How is God going to punish me? I used to think this myself. Uh, when I was an early teen, I thought that if I messed up with God somehow on either a Saturday or a Sunday, that the Eagles would lose. Yeah, it's that silly. But it's true. I thought that. Now, if you were following the Eagles in the late 90s, I must have been a terrible kid. <laughs> but some of us have that thought process. And the Jews often would have had that thought process. But what if? What if it doesn't have to be this way? What if we've got it all wrong? What if our understanding of God needs to be updated? Listen again to verse 16 on how we are supposed to approach the throne. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Confidence. Now this does not square with what we've learned about approaching thrones and approaching God. This kind of manner, just strolling up with confidence, seems kind of reckless, doesn't it? But there it is. Approach with confidence. This is a pretty massive change. Don't overlook that. So what changed? What changed from this approach to the Holy of Holies with fear and only the high priest to be able to approach the throne with confidence. What changed? Maybe there's something in some of these verses that we need to explore. Let's go back to verse 14. 
And let's read the whole verse this time because I skipped over a part of it. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess. So what does it say? Jesus is a great high priest, and he's in heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm initially underwhelmed. I'm not seeing a vast major change here. How does Jesus, being a high priest in heaven, bridge that gap from being scared to approach God to being able to approach God with confidence? Well, the answer for us lies in the role of a high priest, something that's a very foreign concept to us. But once we understand it, it will change our mindset as to how we approach God. So let's look at the role of a high priest. Chapter 5 gets into this. Verse 1. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So what do we learn about the high priest? The high priest was selected from among the people, not by the people. They were actually selected by God, but they were selected from among the people. And they represented the people with God. The people didn't go directly to God. They went through the priest. The priest represents their interest on behalf of God. And the priest also offers gifts and sacrifices on behalf of the people for their sin. He interceded with God on the people's behalf. He would be the one who directly asked forgiveness from God for the people through sacrifices. He was to be their trusted representative. He would be the one facing the consequences if it didn't go well. He would advocate for the people directly to God. He was their mediator. Now for us, maybe maybe this illustration will help us get a more modern day picture of it. Um, Picture you have to be in court for some particular reason. You want to have a lawyer with you, don't you? Now, lawyers sometimes have a bad reputation, but think of a great lawyer, a good lawyer, doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. A good lawyer speaks for you, advocates for you on your behalf, presents your case to the court, tries to get the best possible result for you. That'd be similar to what a good high priest would do. So if you're picking this high priest, what type of characteristics of this person would you want? What would you, what would you want them to, to represent? How would you want them to be towards you? Well, this, verse, this chapter continues talking to us a little bit more about what the high priest does and, and how they acted. In an ideal world, a high priest is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and who are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. The mediator had compassion on the people he was representing. People who didn't know any better and people who were deliberately disobeying. The high priest ideally would have compassion on the people. And how was he able to deal so gently with the people? Because he was humble. Ideally, a high priest would be humble. The high priest was to have compassion for the people because he understood them. As a sinful person himself, he was able to understand 
how they made the mistakes that they do, why they willfully disobeyed, what causes them to go wrong. He understood because he was one of them. Verse 3, this is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. In verse 4, no one takes this honor on himself but receives it when called by God just as Aaron was. The idea here is that the high priest was a big job. Lots of responsibility, lots of pressure. It was not a job you signed up for. It was a job you were selected for. And all of this represented what a high priest did for the people. So now we've got a little bit of better idea of what a high priest does. A high priest, ideally, is chosen by God. They intercede with the people on God, on, intercede with God on the people's behalf, presented sacrifices and offerings for the people's sins, and they understood the people. Keep that picture in mind. Now, the Hebrews would have been very familiar with priests in their roles. This was the life they grew up with. This was a huge part of their spiritual experience and their understanding of how you interacted with God. And for us, keep that picture of a good lawyer advocating for you before the court in mind. So remember our question. How does one go from fear of approaching God with the Holy of Holies to being confident in approaching God. Well, if we remember, the Hebrews were struggling with staying with Jesus and not going back to their old ways. The author is trying to show them that what they have in Jesus is greater than what they had in this old system. The priests were a big deal. So it's important for the author to show them that Jesus is a better version of what they had. A better version. Now, when I was growing up, uh, we'd watch morning kids programming, and they would always have kid-centered commercials on there. And I don't know if you remember the commercials for Toaster Strudel back in those days, but I remember them. They were on all the time, and they all pretty much went the same way. You have some kid glumly coming out of his house with a Pop-Tart onto the school bus. He gets to school, and his friend with the good parents has a toaster strudel for him and said, here, and he's, oh, thank you. And then they would say something like, what do you do with all those Pop-Tarts? And the kid would open his locker and all the uneaten Pop-Tarts would just come tumbling down. And the message was very clear. Why would you eat a Pop-Tart when you can have a toaster strudel? Why would you settle for something that's less when you can have something that's greater? And that's the point the author is about to make with Jesus. It's probably the first time you've ever heard Jesus' analogy with toaster strudel. Hey, you get inspiration where you get it. The author of Hebrews is bringing Jesus back into the equation. Verse 5 and 6, it says this, In the same way, so just like the high priest we were just talking about, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is a high priest. And like the high priest, Jesus did not choose this role for himself. God selected him for this role. And like the high priest, 
understood the people. Jesus understood the people. Jesus understands us. And there's an example is back in chapter 4, verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest, Jesus in this case, who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Jesus empathizes with us. He understands us. Pastor Don did a great job talking about this a few weeks ago. Go back and check that one out. But he's able to understand our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way we are. Now, chapter 5 gives us a specific example of a time when Jesus was tempted and how he responded. Verse 7 and 8. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. He was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Jesus, like us so many times, struggled with doing what his father had asked him to do. He struggled with that idea. And he suffered. Jesus was able to empathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted in every way we were. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what temptation looks like and how appealing it can be. He's been in those tough situations. He understands why people fall, why people give in. He's exactly like the high priest in that regard. With one major difference. One major difference. Back to verse 15. Yet he did not sin. The high priest sympathized with us because he had sinned. Jesus faced what we faced, yet didn't sin. And now we start to see how Jesus is a better version than what they had. The priest's compassion and humility came out of his own frailty and his own weakness. But Jesus was different. And the word here is empathize. Empathize means the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. Jesus' strengths come out of his ability to face what we face, yet not sin. It says here that Jesus learned. He learned not by failing, but by obeying. He didn't learn obedience by first starting with disobedience and moving towards correcting that. He learned by actively engaging in obedience. And as a result, verse 9, once he was made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, you've heard that name Melchizedek a couple times. Just ignore that for now. We're going to come back to that in full force in a couple weeks. But Jesus was made perfect, and he was given that role of a high priest. So now Jesus is the mediator between us and God. Jesus is that good lawyer representing us on our behalf. And he understands us. And he understands our condition. And just like the high priest, Jesus brings sacrifices on our behalf. 
Only in this case, not the temporary animal sacrifices that had to be redone every single year. But he brings himself on the cross, his death, a permanent sacrifice. It says in verse 9, he was the source of eternal salvation. Eternal salvation. Jesus fulfilled everything a priest would have done, but he did it better and he did it permanently. Jesus provides us with the best possible advocate to God we could possibly have. There's no way to state how revolutionary this concept was. Prior to Jesus, everyone always had to go through someone else in order to get to God. We get to go directly to the source. Thanks to Jesus. This is a game changer for us. So what does it mean? What does it mean for us? Well, remember our opening questions. What happened to go from a high priest fearfully approaching the Holy of Holies to verse 16, which says this, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Why can we approach the throne with confidence? Because of Jesus. The Jesus who understands us, who sacrificed for us, the Jesus who represents us to God to ensure that we will receive mercy, grace, and help. What if we don't have to be afraid to come to God? We don't. We do not have to fear coming to God. We don't have to fear approaching Him because He is not angry with us for our sins. We have received mercy when we come to him, we have received mercy, which means not getting what we deserve. We do not have to feel unworthy for bringing our concerns and our cares to him because we will receive grace getting what we don't deserve. And we don't have to feel like he's out to punish us when bad things happen to us. It says that we will receive help in our time of need. Some of us really struggle with our thoughts on how we relate to God and how we view God. We struggle with viewing Him as angry and punishing. But we need to live in the reality that the work of Jesus has advocated on our behalf. We need to grow in our understanding of the reality of how God actually sees us through Jesus that can change how we approach him that can change how we view him and that can make such a difference in our lives and in our relationship with God but there's a second thing that we can learn from this we can learn how to live a better life Jesus provides us with this example and it makes such a difference Jesus faced temptation but did not sin I remember when I used to play video games as a kid, I would get stuck on certain levels and I just couldn't get past them. And I would think, man, this is absolutely impossible to do. Then I'd have a friend come over and he'd beat the level. And then I would get more determined. I'm like, okay, now I know it's possible. I know it's possible to do. And think about why we love high-level performers, athletes, artists, musicians. 
when they're at the very top of their game, they push the boundaries of what's possible as a human, and they show us what's possible. Jesus did the same thing for us. In living the life we lived, in being tempted the way we are tempted, and not sinning, he gave us a path. He showed us what's possible. Overcoming temptation, yet not sinning, is possible with the help of Jesus. He shows us there's a way. So to recap, Jesus is our mediator between us and God. We can go directly to him. And when we approach him, we'll receive mercy and grace and help. And we have Jesus' example of how to live our lives, overcoming temptation and obedience. So now you can respond to this message. Maybe for you, you want to live in the reality that you can approach God with confidence. Or maybe for you, the thing you need to take away from this is understanding that in Jesus' help, you can follow him. And when tempted, not sin, but follow in obedience. On the back of your connection card, there's a space where you can check one of these off. So now, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that Jesus is on our side. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today, and we are so thankful that we can come directly to you because of the work of Jesus. We're so thankful that Jesus advocates on our behalf, that he sacrificed permanently for us so that we can have that relationship with you. God, help us to live in the reality that we can approach your throne with confidence, knowing that we will receive mercy, grace, and help. God, help correct our improper attitudes that we have about you, the things we've misunderstood about you. And let us, let that new understanding deepen our relationship with you. God, we thank you for everything that you've done for us, how you've come down as a human and sacrificed your life for us. God, we are ever grateful. In your name, amen. Thanks again for listening. Any step you take towards Jesus is a step in the right direction. You can find out more about us at crbic.org. That's crbic.org. Thank you.